Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Bonjour, Vince. And no one better to invite to join us today than Vince Chadwick, a senior reporter at DevX, who is in Paris today. Um, hence the bonjour. Nice to, nice to talk with you. Although I guess it's evening there, uh, Vince. And you are there for the the new summit, or sorry, the summit for a new global financing pact, which is the the Macron summit that is kind of the buzz of the week uh, right now in the global development community. Uh, tell us what's what's it feel like to be in Paris right now? What's it feel like at the summit? Thanks, Raj. What's really interesting, I think, for those of you who've been to Paris, is Paris is always magical in June, uh, even in pouring rain as it was this morning. And so, I think what was really interesting this morning was if there was energy you know people are here they're, they're fired up those of us working in global development um know that we need to make serious progress on uh, the um a reallocation of sdrs from the imf climate finance um multilateral development bank reform these are issues everyone knows about and here's this summit being called by one of the world's most influential leaders so this morning, Emmanuel Macron took the stage and he bounded onto stage with his usual energy. Um, and then he immediately threw the, um, the mic or he invited a young um, climate activist from Uganda onto stage who actually requested a minute silence to the victims of climate change. And it was a really poignant reminder that Paris in summertime is wonderful <laughs> and we're at a, a sumptuous palace uh, in, in Paris near Place de la Bourse. But in fact, when you look at the every metric about the things we're supposed to be addressing, we're failing. And it was a real minute of silence. It was a long one. And I think people felt it. And then Mia Motley took the stage, the Prime Minister of um, Barbados, who's been pushing the famous Bridgetown agenda. And she kind of walked between those two poles of a really somber tone, which she was clear on. She told the um, attendees, um, that she faced a choice about going back to Barbados because they're facing down a storm or staying in Paris to try and negotiate movement on some of the issues she's been pushing, um, like, for instance, a debt suspension clause on um, uh, a climate suspension clause on investments where um, countries can't pay back their loans when they've been hit by a climate emergency. So she decided to stay and push for these things. That's how seriously she's taking it. And that really set the tone for delegates and I think wound back some of the initial enthusiasm that Macron was trying to bring and really brought a more somber tone to what we're here discussing today. Got it. And for those who are less familiar with the summit, what's interesting about it is this, this has never existed before, right? There, there's a calendar, a cadence of, of normal international events that have a certain legitimacy to them. You, know, you get the G20 summit that New Delhi is, is that the India is hosting as the G20 president in New Delhi in September. Of course, you know, General Assembly, there's the COP. This summit for a new global financing pact is a one-off, right? Yes and no, in the sense that it's the third one-off summit Macron's held in his time in power since 2017. Uh, 
in 2017, he held a thing called the One Planet Summit, which had a similar vibe, and he'd just been elected, had huge star power, and um, the great and the good from around the world came, including the British Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, and Rishi Sunak has not come today, which has been criticised for, and my colleagues are covering that debate. Um, then in 2021, he had a Financing African Economies Summit in Paris, again, one of these uh, sui generis type events that Macron decided would be useful. Um, there was really a focus on special drawing rights from the IMF and how to reallocate those. That still hasn't happened. And so when I spoke to particularly African participants in this process, they said, okay, now it's getting a bit deja vu with the one-off summits <laughs> and we might be devaluing the currency a bit and perhaps we should really think about why these are, are, are not working and, and really double down on the push for action. Yeah, I guess the sense I get from people who are close to the process is they're seeing this summit, even though it doesn't have the credibility or the the authority that you know a World Bank annual meeting might have. It does have the ability to create momentum and narrative. And I think a lot of organizations, governments are seeing this as a milestone where had there been no summit in June, there would have been quite a long time between the World Bank spring meetings which was maybe the last moment to have this climate and development, um, you know, focus until the G20 meetings in New Delhi in September. And so there's some hope that, hey, this meeting is going to come out with a certain amount of momentum and push that will lead us to more substantive and successful meetings when, you know, boards of governors of, of multilateral development banks are meeting or G20 countries are meeting. But I know you've been covering this. You had a couple of big scoops this week that show exactly kind of this tension between this being a media moment or a narrative building moment versus a, a substantive moment of agreement and some pushback from countries saying, hang on, like, let's let's indicate our our alignment, but let's not commit to anything. Yeah. So that's a really you've hit the nail on the head, because I think. Uh, by having these events, what you also allow to happen is you air the differences, uh, for instance, on the co political controversial question of whether to give the World Bank a capital increase, which may increase China's voting share, um, and it would be problematic, I think, for um, the US in terms of the political situation. So you allow some of those issues to be aired, which means that when you come back to the official track at COP, uh, at the annual meetings, at the G20 in New Delhi, there's more potential for progress. People know where they stand. But the, in the meantime, everyone criticises France for having a summit with no legitimacy. And certainly that has come across in some of the documents that countries like Japan have said, um, every issue you're raising has an official process uh, that um, is trying to resolve it. Why are we having a separate event in Paris? Just uh, some would say a vainglorious uh, exercise for Emmanuel Macron uh, when we could be doubling down on things like the United Nations, and um, which has been working on financing for development for years, as you know, Rajanov, and meets um, in the UN General Assembly quite soon. So some are saying, including in the NGO community, you need to be supporting the UN. And I'll just, in the room today, it was quite interesting as everyone was milling around just before the event began, um, including the Prime Minister of Ethiopia and the um, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who were two years ago, politically not possible to invite those two men because of the political situation at home. Um, they were front stage mingling 
with everyone. And uh, Ajay Banga, the new president of the World Bank, walked in. Everyone raced over to shake his hand. And it was really the great and the good of global development mingling. Uh, and one person I noticed who was a bit isolated, I'm not sure how much you'd read into this, was um, the Secretary General of the United Nations, was sitting by himself, I would not say friendless. I mean, I, you don't, nothing to sneeze at the Secretary General of the United Nations, but you did feel like it was a physical representation of what you sometimes hear from people, which is like, oh, yes, the UN, the UN takes too long. Um, uh, we're, we're doing our own thing to get political momentum. But uh, you'll always have people who say, well, if there's a problem with the UN, we need to fix the UN. That's the first and foremost the thing we should be focusing on. Um, so that was an interesting dynamic to uh, watch uh, firsthand. I'm not sure if I was even supposed to be in the room, to be honest, because um, I arrived chaotically through the basement with German shepherd sniffer dogs chasing myself and the, or a well-known Italian economist through the basement. We kind of emerged into the stage and I was second row. But it was quite interesting to watch the, the body language between the different leaders. And as I said, um, the UN was not just um, isolated on the agenda, uh, although Gutierrez did speak, but um, also physically you could sense that he wasn't the centre of power uh, uh, between the leaders. What a fascinating vignette. And, and I think you're right. It does point to an issue, which is Gutierrez has really positioned himself as a strong critic of the kind of global system and what it's leading toward, the climate crisis. And he's been really, you know, extreme in his statements and, you know, maybe rightly so, given the conditions that the world is facing. Whereas you see someone like Mia Motley, who is really coming from a position of very limited authority. She's the prime minister of a tiny country in Barbados. And it's not as though she heads up some big international institution, but she has found a voice. And she is now both an external advocate, you know, in public, shaping the narrative, but also behind closed doors in these you know, chambers with real significant leaders and institutions trying to shape the, the actual agenda. Um, and maybe we could talk about one of those key agenda points, because I guess if anything comes out of this summit, it may not be tangible progress on this, but perhaps some coalescing momentum around an initiative that Mia Motley's right-hand, you know, economist, Avi Prasad, has, has been pushing for. And it's this idea of some kind of a a credit forgiveness, debt forgiveness, or at least moratorium when countries face a climate crisis. And maybe you could talk a little bit to this, Vince, and, and, and what you're hearing about it. Thanks, Raj. It's interesting because this is indeed one of the uh, issues leading up to the summit that NGOs were saying, you know, encouraging people to tweet at world leaders saying, or Ajay Banga himself saying, you need to bring into full effect the idea that countries who are suffering from a climate disaster um, uh, can hit pause on their debt repayments, uh, which, as you say, is being is pushed as part of the Bridgetown agenda. Uh, of course, those that idea, I think the UK and a few other countries have already put those clauses in some of their loan agreements. Uh, what the um, Bridgetown agenda says is that should be the norm. That should become ubiquitous for all um, loans. And what happened today, um, there was a panel with Janet Yellen, Ajay Banga, Melinda Gates, and um, as with a lot of these things, it's quite scripted. So Janet Yellen sat was, you know, asked a fairly soft question by, I think, Bruno Le Maire, the French um, economy minister. And um, she read a list of things they want, the, the American Treasury want, one of which was these clauses. And then Ajay Banga sat there and said what he was going to do. And one of the things was adopt these clauses in the agreements. 
Now, this is, brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Did all of that happen because Emmanuel Macron called a summit or did that happen because it's a good idea and it arguably should have been happening anyway and this was the place to deliver it? Um, that's a question as old as time for people, I think, in this sector. I had the impression watching it, and it was a very closely watched panel. Kristalina Chris, Georgieva was in the front row taking notes. Mia Motley was listening very carefully. No one was on their phones. There was a real sense in the room that this was a key panel for the summit. But it also could have been an email or a press release, <laughs> probably fewer, uh, fewer hassle. So that was the kind of dynamic we're talking about. And I suspect tomorrow at the press conference, Emmanuel Macron will point to this and say, We've, that's a tangible deliverable within the summit. Uh, it'll be for everyone to make a judgment about what the extent to which the summit brought that about or whether it was something that should have happened but anyway. Yeah, it's a fair debate. And my own impression, having spent part of this week talking with senior officials who are engaged in this process, is you know the forcing mechanism of an event like this really does matter. That suddenly it creates a scramble, right? And the machinery of government kicks in and says, okay, you know, our principal, our treasury secretary, or our prime minister, you know, our development minister is traveling to Paris. What are we going to have this person go and say? What are we going to agree to? And, and before you know it, you end up with this forcing mechanism that, that hopefully does lead to some kind of progress, even if it's minimal and even if there's not a lot of commitment behind it. Hopefully, and I hear advocates as well telling me this, hopefully this will create that momentum or that foundation that leads to an even more successful series of, of meetings and convenings in the fall. I, I think that's right. And I think part of the reason the French got themselves into trouble is they called this a pact. And maybe it's a language thing, but for me, a pact is you really sign on to a, a pact, which is binding. Um, <laughs> And this is something other than a pact. <laughs> it's, as you say, a momentum moment, and it's one that um, behoves us as, as journalists and advocates to keep, uh, keep people's feet to the fire in the next months. The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevEx Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. You had an interesting conversation with Peter Sands, who... Uh, of course, is the head of the Global Fund to fight HIV, malaria, and TB. And Peter is you know, known, well-known as a, a leading voice on the private sector role in global development and global health because he's the former CEO of a, of a major international bank um, before he took on this job. Just maybe tell the people listening, and what did Peter have to say? Because um, I thought it was a fascinating interview you had with him. That was fascinating for me because I wasn't expecting him to go so far in his critique of much of what this summit stands for. But basically, the thing to understand about the Global Fund is it works mostly through grants, which is not very in vogue in development these days. There's a lot of talk about loans, um, how, you know, concessional lending, uh, budget guarantees to support development banks going into riskier areas. 
the old idea that I think many people in the street still have of development aid as actually physically giving money to NGOs or other countries that you never see again uh, is definitely out of vogue. But the Global Fund works on um, AIDS, uh, tuberculosis and malaria. And the point that Peter Sands made to me in the interview was if you want to work on some of those issues, there is no business case uh, for giving someone a mosquito net necessarily. But it's the right thing to do. And he mentioned Pakistan, which is affected by serious flooding, where, you know, and other Delta regions in the world where you need that kind of thing to um, ensure people's health. And so the conversation took a direction which I wasn't expecting, which culminated in him saying something which I thought was really memorable. He said people like to talk about innovative finance, but it's often a proxy for we don't want to spend any money. And so that's really, I was glad to get the story out yesterday ahead of this summit because I think it shapes really well the debate here. Are we having these conversations about boosting, people talk about stretching the, the existing capital of the World Bank, or shouldn't we be talking about a enormous capital injection into the World Bank or other funds? I mean, the statistic um, Peter gave, which I found amazing, was that globally the world spends $6 billion a year on malaria, and the that is roughly the annual budget of one hospital in Los Angeles. Advocates have probably heard Peter say this in the past. But as I ended the interview with him saying, what are we really doing here? Are we focused on the right things? And Peter, I think, is in an interesting position because, as you say, Raj, he is an experienced investment banker. He understands what the claim is when people talk about innovative catalytic capital, and he's really called BS on some of it in a strong way, right? Right, Just before a summit, which for the declaration tomorrow, will have large sections devoted to the idea of innovative financial instruments. So it was... A really interesting interview, as you say, and I, I hope it's it's read widely. Yeah, I mean, this is, first of all, that statistic about $6 billion spent globally on malaria and the same as the Los Angeles hospital budget is really arresting. I mean, when you see that, it's just absolutely shocking. And, and I, I know there's many other stats like it that, you know, advocates bring out, but it, it really does bring it home that in the end, the world should be spending a lot more if these are really priority issues. But instead, it seems like the political phase that we're in, in the world, is that, you know, wealthy Western countries find themselves looking at plateauing aid budgets. You know, the politics domestically in the U.S., in France, in Germany, in, in the U.K., I mean, maybe Germany is a bit of an exception, but generally the politics are, look, we don't, we don't have a lot more budget to spend on foreign assistance. We have to make the budget we have go further. Hence the big focus on innovative finance and bringing in the private sector. Prior to Ajay Banga getting the, the nod to be the new head of the World Bank, there were plenty of people that we reported on saying, hey, we could, there could be hundreds of billions of new dollars coming out of the, the World Bank if they just change the way they work and crowd in the private sector. I think it was John Kerry who was on stage at COP in Egypt. I was there in the audience and saying, you know, 500 billion to a trillion in new money could could be unleashed by the bank. And um, now that Ajay is in the job, you know, just briefly, we reported just in the last several days that he's now talking more about tens of billions, not hundreds of billions. And he too, like Peter Sands, is, you know, an expert in the world of private sector finance. So I guess, you know, the rubber is starting to meet the road and, and reality is starting to become clearer. And, you know, as one insider told me this week, 
there's a reason this is called the evolution, you know, and not the revolution. And so uh, when we think about the roadmap at the World Bank, right, there's a reason. It is going to take some time to get there. And there is no really simple, quick silver bullet. But hopefully this week, hopefully these two days, today and tomorrow in, in Paris, we can get some of that real momentum. Um, but that's certainly what we're what we're there to cover, what you're there to cover. And uh, it's been incredible, Vince, to read some of your scoops coming out of the, of the conference already and getting this really insider view. I mean, uh, for those of you who are not DevX Pro members, you know, this week was a good reason to sign up because Vince had two stories for our, our, pro, our pro members, one of which provided an early draft of the, of the Paris document and the other which seemed to get into some of the internal um, machinations among governments and including their notes on, on how they were, they were seeing the final agreement coming out. So pretty remarkable reporting from you, Vince. Uh, maybe as we wrap up here, any other thoughts or, or things that you're on the lookout for as you continue to cover this today and tomorrow? Perhaps I can end with something that someone told me um, uh, just before coming out here, which is that um, there are, they said two things. They said there are no new ideas. This is someone who's been working for decades on these global development topic. They told me there's no new ideas and they told me we're losing our champions. And you pointed to some of the aid cuts. I'd, I'd add to that Sweden is a big one. Um, and I think France is actually kicking the trend and Macron that is walking the talk or talking the walk, whatever people like to say, um, by raising France's aid budget and going back towards 0.7. And then uh, we should look at the Spanish election and what might happen to Sanchez in a few weeks as well. So this is a really good reminder, actually, you can feel a bit like a citizen of nowhere at some of these events, but politics really matters. US elections matter a lot and in Europe as well. Um, and so for me, that was a really interesting conversation because it, sometimes in development, you can feel like you're off a bit in your own box somehow. Um, but uh, it was a really poignant reminder that when um, things don't go the right way of aid champions domestically, it has real impact on what people are able to do at events like this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a reminder, too, you know, that there are some countries that are not cutting their budget or maybe even growing in their influence. We had a, an opinion article published on DevX yesterday by President Jin, the president of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which has obviously been in the news a lot with the very public uh, resignation of their Canadian communications director this week. And AIB President Jin says, you know, look, we need to coordinate better across the multilateral system. We need to have the regional banks be part of this, and there needs to be kind of one approach. And that's, um, you know, that's an interesting message from a country and, a, and an institution that is now, you know, a significant funder of development, a significant, the largest co-financer of World Bank projects. Um, so you're right, as some countries are wavering, plateauing, others are stepping up in a higher, in a bigger way, and the geopolitics of all of this is becoming more center stage. So, you know, it is a fascinating event to be on the on the front row of their events. And I really appreciate you being there and bringing us these stories. And uh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Bye. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.